Good morning. <coughs> Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters the name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And our New Testament reading 
is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Thank you, Kathy, and good morning, everybody. It's great to be back with you again as we continue in our journey through Genesis in this series called Earth. Now, you might recall, maybe you don't, maybe you weren't here last week, we started this journey in Genesis chapter 1, and we invited David in his Psalm 19 to kind of coach our minds a little bit, because David said, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. And so taking our coaching from David, we looked at this creation that is the heavens and the earth. And what did we see? We saw a God who forms, who fills, and gives rest. Once again this morning, I want to encourage us to take our lead from David, who knows a thing or two about God. And in his eighth psalm, he says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he goes on to contemplate the name of God and who God is and how God is once again seen in his creation and indeed in his his creatures. So as we do that today and we come once again to the earth, we're going to see something of the God who reveals himself in the scripture and has left his fingerprints on you and me and on all of creation. And whilst last week we saw a God who forms and fills and brings rest, Today, I want to show you something else of God. Today, in Genesis chapter 2, I want to show you the God of life-giving partnership. That's the big idea for today. Uh, The God of life-giving partnership. To do that, we're going to start by seeing the God who forms, who fills, and gives life. And here's how we jump into Genesis chapter 2 at verse 4. Genesis 2 verse 4 says this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and they created uh, bara once again from nothing. Amazing, the God who doesn't need bunnings. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, 
when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And immediately David has helped us out because David asks us to observe the majestic name of the Lord in all the earth. And already uh, there's something in God's name here that's different. Did you notice in Genesis chapter 1 we read of God did, God did, God did. Now God's name's got a little bit longer. We have the Lord God made. We've gone in the original language from Elohim, the God, the divine being, the one who sets all limitation, the one who knows that six days is enough, that now it's time to rest, the one who throws stars into space and is able to articulate for he is the center of all things. Now we've come from Elohim to Yahweh Elohim. And Yahweh might be a name of God that you're familiar with because this is how he revealed himself from the burning bush. Yahweh is God kind of up closer. We've gone from transcendent, remember, separate God creating, whose spirit hovered over the waters and who formed, filled, and gave rest. As he comes closer and closer, now we're seeing God real close. He is Yahweh Elohim. He is the Lord God. God has kind of rolled up his sleeves and he's ready to uh, play in the dirt to be a part of his creation, you might say. But the other thing that happens here is we're invited to have a bit of a a change of perspective. It doesn't make a lot of sense just to read Genesis 1 and go, and then Genesis 2 happens. Now you can see that we're sort of jumping back into some of the previous events of Genesis 1. But like when you watch, I don't know, I know you don't watch it, but Days of Our Lives, and like there's a scene and they're talking, and then, you know, someone says something, and all of a sudden the camera zooms in, it's like, oh. And you get the close-up. Oh, you don't watch Days of Our Lives, but you laughed. For the sports fans, this is where the racing car goes by, and then they say, let's take the onboard shot. This is a camera change. We're going to see the events of creation as Yahweh Elohim does his work, as he forms, fills, and gives life. So we're changing camera. As we read on through our new camera angle, we see some things we didn't see last time. Verses 5 and 6 speak of a creation that anticipates partnership. How do I know? Because of the word yet. That's a dead giveaway that there's more to come. Uh, also, because I, like you, have read Genesis chapter 1 and know that uh, creation's going to be growing things and stuff's going to happen. But the yet is a great indication. No shrub had yet appeared, but one will appear. What does this creation anticipate? It anticipates partnership. The partnership that will happen between creator, creature, and creation. No shrub had yet appeared on the earth, on the creation. Hadn't yet sprung up. Why? Because the Lord God, who again reveals something of himself, is provider. He's providential. He hasn't sent rain yet. He hasn't blessed this creation in that way. He hasn't provided the rains. He hasn't provided the stuff that God is in the business of providing to make it all work. But not only has God not done that yet, we also see that there's no one there to work the ground. This creation anticipates a partnership between providential provider God, creator, and the one we read about in Genesis chapter 127, his image bearer. The image bearer who we learned will continue the work of God as former and filler, rest giver. So with God providing the reins and this 
creature, this someone we're waiting for to work the ground, we see a creation that anticipates a wonderful partnership between creature, creator, and creation so that life and shrubs and things might happen as God works through his image bearer. So God goes to work again. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and Adam became a living being. Now I owe a debt here to uh, Professor Ian Proven from Regent College in Vancouver who helped me uh, understand this passage a lot better some years ago. Our translation can sometimes bring us unstuck because language changes. When I say to you, it's amazing they put a man on the moon... It doesn't necessarily mean that, well, it was Neil Armstrong, the male man who was on the... I mean, he was. But we used to use the language of man in such a way that it meant a human. The word Adam doesn't have a connotation of gender. And sometimes we mistakenly think it does, but it doesn't. Uh, So we're better off, rather than saying the Lord God formed a man, and we think of a male, that's not what happens here. No, as uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says, the Lord God made them male and female. This earthling, if you will, which I know sounds like a sci-fi movie, but it's not. This Adam from Adamah, this earthling from the earth, embodies humanity. This one formed male and female. This one that God says in Genesis 1, he formed them. And dare I say, this is the first time and under God the last time any individual should adopt them as their personal pronoun. For God has done more. So God makes the Adam, the earthling, the worker, uh, God formed him. Now you saw when God made the heavens and the earth, he bara, created from nothing. Here we don't see bara, we see God formed. This is different language. And so should someone from another area of exploration tell us more about the origins of humanity, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to fret. We just need to be inquisitive and learn about things we might not know. But what we do know is that God formed this earthling in his image. His image bearer would go on with the work of forming and filling. But there's a problem. The image bearer is not alive yet. So God forms the image bearer, the Adam, and here's this amazing thing. Just like in the very beginning of Genesis... When the earth was formless, empty, dark, and deep, and the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters, and God drew near and formed, filled, and brought rest, now once again that spirit or wind or breath or ruach comes near, but not just near, at the will of Yahweh Elohim, the Spirit of the Lord is breathed into the Adam. And once again, God shows himself as the former. He formed his Adam. He fills his Adam with his own breath. And he became alive. He became a life-living being in the image of God like none other there had been before. 
And so we meet the God who forms, fills, and gives life. Let's go on with this story and meet the God who partners. So as the story goes on in verses 8 and 9, I haven't put those up for you, um, God plants a garden. He takes his earth and he plants a garden. The garden's called Eden. Now, what is a garden? A garden is an ecosystem. It's a place of partnership. It's a place that relies upon God to do things like sending the sunlight and giving water. And it relies upon you. That's why some of us are called black thumbs because we're not good at the partnership. And some of us are green thumbs because we are good at the partnership. But a garden is a great space to see partnership on display. It's where creature, creator, and creation play, and life is evident. And that's exactly what God does. God planted a garden, a relational ecosystem. Now, in the weeks to come, we'll say more about those trees. We may say some more about those rivers, which are significant as well. But I'm going to move on from that and leave that wonderful duty of talking trees to Robin next week. And I can't wait for him to take us into the dark places of Genesis 3. But God creates this amazing relational ecosystem. And here's what he says of it, verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took Adam and put Adam in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. What do we see here? We see the articulation of the relationships in the partnership. We see how creator and creature, that is the Adam, how they're going to relate. God's in charge and Adam as his image bearer takes his commands from God and is placed where God puts him and does the work God has assigned him to the glory of God. So we see uh, creator and creature. We see creator and creation, for it's God who's going to bring upon the rain and all that sort of stuff. And it's God who has subjected the creation to the creature. So we've got creator and we've got creature. We've got creator and creation. We've got creature and creation. The creature, well, his job is going to be, the Adam's job is going to be to tend the garden, and in return, the garden will feed him. There's a way that their partnership works. So we see creator and creature, creator and creation, creature and creation, but there's something missing here. What's missing is creature and creature. We don't yet know how all the living creatures are meant to relate. And now God says something he hasn't said before. After declaring at each step of his creation, it was good, it was good, it was good, we get to verse 18. And God says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. Every time God worked through Genesis 1, as he filled and he formed, he declared it good. Why does he now say it's not good? He's not saying it's poor or it's morally bad. He's saying I'm not done. He's saying there's more forming and filling to see. 
Now, we have a secret insight here because we are Christian and we've read the New Testament and we've seen more of God revealed. We know that God is triune, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You might even recall last year we did a little series on the Trinity and you might recall we came upon this crazy big word called perichoresis, the perichoretic unity of the Trinity. And you're like, there is no chance I remember that word, and that's okay. Maybe, just maybe, you remember the image of three gorgeous little girls dancing ring around the rosy like this. That is the picture of perichoresis. That is the picture of your triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect partnership in the dance of being God, Never confused, never separated, always united, always one, but always three persons in their one, in this perfect partnership relationship. Gee, that's got to be a tough dance to do all by yourself. And so the image bearer has a little weight to go under God, to be formed and filled to be the image bearer God plans him to be. More so, for all of creation, there's still some forming and filling to happen. And so God brings all the creatures, all the other living creatures he's created, he brings them before the Adam. And Adam names them. You're going to be a cow. You're going to be a fox, a bit concerned about our future together. Uh, you're going to be a fly. They'll love you in Australia. You're going to be a saltwater crocodile. They'll love you for different reasons. You're going to be an owl. He names everyone. He doesn't learn a lot about himself in doing this. He names all of them. He names all of them, all of the creatures. But no suitable correspondent to him is found. We still need to get to good, to get to complete, to get to formed and filled and understanding and learning. Who am I for Adam? And now what God does is he says, it's not good for him to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for Adam. Now, here's again a reason why it's very important that we understand that Adam is not a male. Adam is not a man. This is not a case of, so men are created in God's image, and just as well, the maid turned up. That's a caricature in its worst understanding. What we have here is the Adam, the earthling, and God says, I'll make a suitable helper or quite literally a like opposite for him, an opposer for him. Yeah, an opposer, that doesn't sound too good. And in the world of sinful, fallen humanity, it can be problematic. You've heard of the battle of the sexes. But this is how some rabbis have chosen to explain what is going on here. And you see the beautiful, of having an, the beautiful side of having an opposer. It looks like this, like when you build a house of cards, which I'm not very good at. Lord, please, in your name, remember. God says, I'm going to create a like opposite. Because when Adam met cows and he met birds and he met all these other creatures, he could inform them, but they weren't fully able to inform him. So here's what God does. Let's continue on. You'll see it on the screen. So the Lord God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And while Adam was sleeping, he took one of Adam's ribs or a part of Adam. 
something out of Adam. And you'll see a little footnote in your NIV there. He took something out of Adam and then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of Adam and he brought her to Adam. And here's the awesome bit. Here's life-giving partnership. Let's continue on. Adam says, ah, at last. You're like me. Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh, but you're not me. You'll be called woman or Isha, for you were taken out of Ish. And now we have gender. Defined and clear gender under God. We did not have it previously. It wouldn't have meant anything. And this teaches us some wonderful things about what it is to be human under God. For Adam sees the one who opposes, the one who shows me, you're like me, but you're not me. You help me understand me. And here is such an important thing for us to understand about human identity. Human identity occurs in partnership. You can't self-identify. God does not do that. God the Father knows he is God the Father as he sees God the Son. God the Son knows he is God the Son as, he, as he's come from, he's begotten of God the Father. And God the Holy Spirit knows he is the Holy Spirit because he is the Spirit or the breath of the Holy One. God the Father and God the Son. And so they find their identity by going, Ooh, you're like me, but you're not me. And so the image bearer, Adam comes to understand something of himself. I am male. I'm a man because I see female, because I see woman. I'm a woman because I see man. I see male. You're like me, but you're not me. You're different. Humanity, identity, is something that we learn in partnership. It's why I must say this concept today where genders are confused between male and female and, and there's talk of gender fluidity is an undoing of God's forming and filling and a wickedness that is proudly proclaimed upon a fallen world. But in God's mind, in God's economy, in God's life-giving partnership, there are like opposites bearing his image together. God teaches us that to know ourselves, to have life, is not a matter of independence. And much older and much bigger and much more concerning to, to us than even the concept of gender fluidity and the changing of things is this idea of independence. Because independence is a concept that is proudly preached by Christian and non-Christian alike. The number of 18ths and 21sts I've been to where kids have stood up, new adults have stood up and they've said, my parents raised me to be independent. Well, your parents raised you sub-biblically. They say, oh, they've grown to be such an independent young person. Well, perhaps under God they might repent of that because independence is not of God. 
And we'll learn more of that next week in Genesis 3. God himself is interdependent, understanding his identity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with others. And so for humanity to know myself, to know you, we need one another. We need to see the other who is like me, but not me. The one who is different from me and celebrate the difference. And this is what the New Testament is talking about when we come to 1 Peter chapter 3. We come to 1 Peter chapter 3 and we see these these instructions for households and how husbands and wives are meant to live together. You know why? Because after the fall, in fact, it's right there in the fall, we see that when we understand that, ah, you're like me, but you're not like me, some, some awkward things happen where I start to go, actually, you like me, but I've got some stuff you don't have. And I tell myself I win, but you can see we both lost. The message of 1 Peter 3 is to say, you're like each other, but you're different to one another. How do you not do that? How do you instead, under God, value the way you have been created and be appropriate, like opposites for one another, bearing the image of God? And so I've just zeroed in on the last bit there. Let me just do this, because otherwise, you know. You get the point. (laughs) I'm not God. I'm a fallen man. It's hard to do. But what God does say here is, husbands, in the same way, consider, be considerate as you live with your wives. You understand they're the weaker partner. There are things you have that they don't have. And earlier in the passage, wives, there are things you have that a husband doesn't have. Honor the other. Honor the other partner. Value the partnership. And Peter goes on to say, because otherwise so that nothing will hinder your prayers. How does that wreck my prayers? Well, it depends what you think prayers are. If you think prayers are divine magic spells, we pray to make God do what we want, then it's probably worth revising your doctrine of prayer. I think a beautiful kind of way to think about prayer is like in the garden where uh, God walked in the cool of the day with his creatures. To pray is to draw alongside God closely. To walk next to him and say, God, I don't get why you're going that way because I reckon we should go that way. Can you help me understand so my heart might be aligned to yours? God, I love that you led us this way. This is really great. Thank you. My heart delights with yours as we go this way. God, I am so broken at this. Will you please stay near me? Your fellowship, your partnership is what I need to bear this. Will you be the shepherd who leads me through the valley? That's prayer. So... When we ignore the concept of partnership, we back away as creatures from one another and we back away from our creator's design and our prayers are hindered because we start to draw towards independence. God says, no, come near one another, celebrate the other, work with the other and sit under me because without me, the garden doesn't grow. I'm the kingdom builder. You're the image bearer. I'm the form filler and life giver. So come into partnership with me and be filled, be formed, have rest have life 
And you might be thinking, so what does that mean if I'm not married? It means everything if you're not married, because just like the garden is a microcosm of something bigger, so is marriage. It's a microcosm of something bigger. These are just intense examples, intense examples of how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God is about wonderful partnership. We've seen this, haven't we? You saw it in our bodybuilding series where we went, hey, your gifts are different to mine. You're like me, but you're different. Hey, but when we work together, that's the body of Christ. That's the kingdom of God. That's a God-glorifying thing. That's awesome. Let's do that. When Jesus came, he said, a great light has dawned to those who are living in darkness. This is an international statement of partnership where he's saying, hey, Jews and Gentiles, you're like one another, but you're not one another. Guess what? You're going to be united in one Messiah now. Jew and Gentile as one person, as one people under God. Jesus came along and he said, hey, love your neighbor as yourself. They're like you, but they're not you. But when you work with one another, when you provide this, this beautiful opposition, this help, you bear my image. It's wonderful. Shall I give you an example? When someone's opposition's no good, I mean, when someone's like a jerk to you, this is really great because this is where God trains us in grace, right? If everyone was fantastic, how would you ever grow in grace? I reckon this is why church exists, not just to encourage us along, but it's like a gym. You come to train your grace muscles because sometimes people bug you. Sorry, sometimes people bug me. You're far more godly. Um, so you work together. Someone's a jerk to you. You forgive them, they repent, and you reconcile. Wow, there's the image of God being born right there. A gracious God. The ministry of reconciliation. Boom, partnership. It's a beautiful thing. This is what God's called us to. This is, it's not just about male and female. It's about you and your like others. Those with different gifts being united in Christ. Jews and Gentiles being united in Christ. Older generations and younger generations not being terrified of each other because they speak differently and think differently, but working together, united in Christ. This is the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom as it was designed. This is the kingdom as it's modelled. This is the kingdom for us to pursue. One where we follow a God who gives life giving partnership as we are interdependent with one another and just so utterly dependent upon him for his grace and his forgiveness. You know, there's some lovely language in the New Testament that would be a really sad shame and sub-biblical if we lost it. Uh, in the original language, the word is alone, and it means one another. Next time you're reading one of Paul's letters, look out for it. You'll just see it. One another, one another, one another, one another, one another, one another, one another. But the kingdom pattern that God has designed is one where we receive life from him and we participate in it together with like opposites, regardless of what they might be. And so let us thank God, the God who has given us life, the God who has given us life-giving partnership with him and with one another. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. 
We thank you that in him there is salvation for all nations. We thank you that in him there is salvation for male and female. We thank you that in him there is hope, there is a future, there is rest. And so, Father God, would you lead us by your Spirit in repentance for the times where we fight against those who are different to us for whatever reason they might be different. Instead, might we value the difference of others? Might we find ourselves united in Christ? Might we celebrate that you are the God, not of the individualistic mind, but the God who loves us personally and calls us into kingdom fellowship with you and with one another. Lord God, give us gentle hearts, ears that are quick to listen, mouths slow to speak, that do really well at partnering with one another for your glory and for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.